tonight. Lord, I thank you again as we uh, have gathered in this place tonight. Uh, we are uh, here and, and I pray ready to dig into your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would already be moving uh, in our hearts, in our minds. Uh, Lord, that you would be uh, working in us tonight as we dig through uh, however much scripture you have in store for us. I kind of have an idea, Lord, but um, I don't know if I want to let the cat out of the bag yet. Um, people may leave. Um, but I pray that you would just ha- help us to, to enjoy uh, the time that we spend in your word, uh, that it would be fruitful to our souls, uh, and that we would uh, be made ready for the week, that we would go out uh, and and um, put work in in the harvest, Lord. There are those uh, around us at work and in our schools and in our families uh, that have not placed their faith in you yet, and there are some of those who will if we would but share this good news that we have. Uh, so prepare us for that, and then send us out joyfully rejoicing in the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, as we open up uh, tonight in the Scripture, I pray for me, Lord, that uh, you would calm my nerves, that you would uh, seal my lips, that I speak nothing of my own, uh, but that we would just dig through your Scripture, line by line, truth by truth, and that we would be built up by you, Lord, by you and you alone. It's in Christ's name, for His glory. Amen. Alright, Romans chapter uh, 11. We're going to be starting in verse 7 tonight. So y'all go ahead and be getting there. We're going to do two sermons in one tonight. The good news is the first like couple of verses is going to be a recap, so y'all should get it pretty easily, okay? Um, so instead of recapping, what, what we're going to find here in 7, 8, 9, and 10 is actually a beautifully worded recap of all that we have seen in chapters 9, 10, and 11 up to this point. So if you have... Maybe this is your first. I know I see a couple of new faces, and I know some faces that have come maybe haven't been here for the whole starting in chapter 9, pushing up to here. Um, listen closely to what we see in these verses, and then I would ask you to go and uh, read and study chapters 9, 10, and 11 um, on your own to kind of, to kind of uh, get the... The, the long version, if you would. So, um, chapter 11 of the book of Romans, we're going to be looking in verse 7. And it starts out like this. He's, Paul says, what then? Right? And when Paul says, what then? Right? What is he referring to? What's he, what's he trying to bring out when he says, what then? What then in regards to what then? The last verse would be a good place to start, and I would I would go ahead and tell you here that what we're going to find is if you were to back up to the next verse and keep backing up, you would be able to back up the what then here that we're looking at in chapter 11. You would be able to back this thing up all the way into the beginning of chapter 9, right? So we're actually getting very close to, to kind of ending this dig deep down into a particular question that we started weeks ago at this point. What have we been exploring over the last several weeks? If somebody could, if somebody could maybe throw a, a, an answer out there to that question. What is Paul trying to satisfy? What question is he trying to satisfy in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans? I see we've got preachers here, and, and if they don't answer, y'all feel free to answer. What's the question? What then? Right? What then? So he's trying to come to a conclusion on something here, and we need to, st- we need to start at the beginning to really get what he's trying to say. Right? What's the conclusion that he's trying to draw out here? Let me give you a little bit of a heads up. We've, we're now... 11 chapters into the book of Romans. And we have dug verse by verse through the entire thing up to this point. The first eight chapters tell us specifically what as a whole? What's the first eight chapters of the book of Romans telling us? What is it rolling out for us? The gospel. The gospel. Right? 
At the end of chapter 8, if you've never read chapter 8, go read it. If you've been here through this study, you've read it and we've read it time and time again. But at the end of chapter 8, we're left with such an amazing hope, are we not? Can I read it for you? I want to read just a couple of verses out of chapter 8 so that we can really fathom why it is that Paul has now spent three chapters Digging into and answering the question that he's going to really shortly summarize here for us at the end. Or kind of middle here of chapter 11. So chapter 8. Let's look at some of the amazing things that we see in chapter 8. 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That's an amazing truth, is it not, church? Is that not one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture? That if you are a believer, if you are part of the church, if you have placed your faith in the gospel that He has been pouring out through this book, all things work together for your good. All things. The worst of experiences in this life. As believers, we can trust that God is working those together for a good that we cannot yet fathom, that we will find in Christ. And this is a hope that in the darkest of days we cling to. And this is a hope that we have based on what? Based on who God is based on who we know God to be, by who He's revealed Himself to be throughout time, and specifically in the person of Christ, promises laid out time and time and time again. I hope that we can say things like this, that in the midst of those trials we can say, in all these things, in all these things, this is eight Chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are these not amazing promises? And as we come to this point in the book, and now we've been spending quite a deal of time on chapters 9 and 10 and now 11, What's the question that Paul's trying to answer? You've laid out for me a gospel that has big promises, Paul. Right? You've laid out for me a gospel that says things like, in the worst of days, I am more than a conqueror. Not just that I overcome and overcome in Christ, but more than that. Right? Where a normal conqueror conquers by sword, if we lay our lives down for Christ, we still find ourselves to be what? Conquerors. Why? Because we're more than conquerors in Christ. Now, if God could fail in His promises, that would be a problem. Can He fail in His promises? And that's why, nine. 10 and 11 of the book of Romans are so important. Because Paul is a Jew. Placed his faith in Christ now preaching to the Gentiles. And the Jews, who the Messiah had come through, now seem to have rejected their own Messiah. And it seems as though in the midst of this, that they have failed to get all of the promises that God had laid out beforehand for them to their to the patriarchs of their faith to Abraham Isaac all those that would come down so can God fail in his promises is the question no why can we place a hope in him that is unwavering because he can not fail. Then what about the Jews who have fallen 
away. What about them? How does that fit into this big picture, Paul, that you're trying to tell us, that you've been telling us? And now we're in chapter 11, verse 7, and we are recapping all that he's told us before. What then? What then? As he's been pouring over why it is Scripture after Scripture, Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference, showing us that what's happening now is not the failing of God's Word, but in fact the fulfilling of God's Word. Chapter 11, verse 7. What then? And here's Paul's answer to this. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it seeking? What was Israel seeking, church? What was it seeking after? It was seeking after an earth of the king. These are, these are good answers. Specifically, through the text that we've looked at, we can see an answer to this. Power would not be a bad answer. Say that again. They weren't specifically looking for grace. Um, they didn't necessarily know at this point that they even needed grace. And that's, that's a big part of the problem. They wanted what we achieve in grace. What do we achieve? What does Christ achieve for us? Say this again. Righteousness. They wanted righteousness. But where we achieve righteousness in the work of Christ, they sought to achieve righteousness how? Through the works of the law. And they failed miserably in this. They wanted what? Righteousness. They failed to achieve righteousness. Why? And God's Word tells us, we've, we've covered this. What shall we say then in verse 30 of chapter 9? Paul says, what then, or what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if, but as if it were based on works. And they have stumbled over stumbling stone. So, back to chapter 11, verse 7. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it seeking? Why did it fail? Because they pursued the law, and their fulfilling of the law was based not on Christ and the work of Christ, but the works of man. And what do we know about the works of man? They fail Every time God's Word tells us none is righteous. No, not one. None seeks after God apart from God seeking them. This is the kind of thing that Scripture says about the fallenness of man. Israel failed. But what does it say next? So this is a summary of what we've been looking at. So if you wanted to see what has Landon been trying to say in chapter 9, 10, leading up here in chapter 11. Here's what God's Word says. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. I'll read that again. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened as it is written. And Paul, time and time and time again, is just quoting Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. And he doesn't stop now. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Who gave them a spirit of stupor? God gave them a spirit of stupor. Now we've covered much of this, and if some of this is a little confusing to you, maybe you're one of the ones that that this is the first that you've been to in a while or something like that. Um, 
get with me after, chat me up about this stuff. Um, I'll chat with you till my kid gets crazy and starts pulling plugs out of stuff, right? Or go online and listen to some of the sermons that have come up to this point, right? Do not miss this truth, and, and do not let these kind of things uh, just pass you by. I, I would I would just put out before you, if you're confused by this, that's okay. Um, God confuses me a lot of times. It's not. Let's not be afraid of being confused by things. Let us understand that God knows what we yet are yet to discover, um, and let us trust in Him. That's faith is about trusting in Him, though we don't see it all. We trust in Him. God gave them, verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8 here, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day, and they will not stand before Him and use this verse against Him. This is why Paul has spent so much time digging through as he has. Because not only is this true, that God gave them a spirit of stupor, but what else do we know about what's taking place? Why are they not Christians? They were disobedient to the gospel. So God gave them a spirit of stupor, and simultaneously, not contradictory, they just didn't believe Christ. They didn't believe it. When they stand before God guilty of their sins, having attempted to do it themselves in the law, and He says you didn't do it, they will not be able to bring any charge against God for being unfair to them. Christ walked among them, yet they rejected Him. Verse 9, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Paul drops this summary on us. And I know many of y'all are like, I wish you'd have skipped over the last like 15 hours worth of preaching and just got to that point, right? <laughs> That's it. We've spent like the last like couple months digging through and we could have just flipped here, but it wouldn't have been as fun. How do we just flipped to here? And y'all would have had even more questions than the ones that are new to this study or having right now. Lord, help us as we press on. So, was their falling away arbitrary? Right? Is God just mean? Is He just being cruel? Like, is He giving them spirit of stupor and getting a big chuckle out of all of this? Does God find pleasure at all in men who perish? No! Not at all! Why? Has this taken place? And last last Sunday, kind of a good little way to say it, God is sovereign, and they were disobedient. Same time, both truths hold. God is sovereign. So what was He doing in that hardening? We're going to see Paul again and a little bit use that word. So I don't want us to be scared of that. God gave them a spirit of stupor. God hardened Israel. Christ was crucified. God is sovereign. The man nailing the nails into Christ's hand will not on that day be like, well, Lord, you were sovereign and you prophesied that from time and time and time ago. We would hope that that man, after seeing what Christ did on the cross, would have come to repentance it was not something impossible because God's been working from before through Abraham, throughout history, even today through the power of the Holy Spirit. He works among even us. So why? So why did this take place? Why has Israel stumbled? Why has Israel failed to Except the Savior that was sent for them. 
verse 11 of chapter 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Was the purpose of their stumbling their ultimate demise? Is that why God did it? And when I say something like, is God's actions here arbitrary? When I use that kind of phrasing, what I mean by that is he, is he got a reason for what he's doing? Like, is there a purpose in it? Or is it just arbitrary? Is he just like pulling things out of the air here? Or is there a reason? Does God have reason in all that he does? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad to see that we've got that kind of quick response because we've got cancer that's running rampant throughout many of our congregation. We've got all kinds of other things. And still, what do we know? Who's in control of everything? And though we may not know the answers, though we may not see the future, we know for certain what? All things work together for good. Because God has made promises, and God cannot fail in His promises. And God had time and time again throughout Israel's history, from their very founding, been telling them, been pointing out time and time again. This is why Paul has so much ammunition that he can bring up against Israel at this point. Like, is it based on their understanding? They just lack understanding. If they lacked understanding, it was not because it wasn't right there in front of them in the Scriptures. If they lacked understanding, it's the same reason that we don't. Is we don't care enough to open it up. And read. We don't care enough to seek. It wasn't because it wasn't there. And Paul shows this time and time again as he quotes over and over and over from the Old Testament. From the very beginning. From the writings of Moses he quotes these things. By no means. Okay, so verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And Paul quickly answers as y'all answer, by no means, rather... Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so to make Israel jealous. Alright, so we're going to deal with this in in kind of two parts, because as we dig on into this, we're going to see, I think we see some of the motive of Paul even in the way that he preaches just so like on fire about this truth. Because Paul sees himself fulfilling prophecies that God has made, right? Paul sees in what God's calling him to do, God fulfilling some promises about making Israel jealous that he's now quoted before, and now he brings up this truth again. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So what is one major thing that we know happened because Israel rejected Christ? Okay, so we're going to, yeah, so Gentiles came to God. One major one that we need not forget, and I don't think that y'all did, is that Christ was crucified because they rejected him, right? Like he's, this guy's running around saying he's God, and he gets put on a cross because of it. They rejected him and placed him on a cross, and God had set this out from the beginning. Like, this is such a beautiful thing, the way that God is working this out, because our hope and our salvation comes through this one wise God. So that when we look through this and we think, well, I think I could have done it a different way, right? Like, I think I could have done it. In hindsight, I think I could have done it and the Jews not all fallen away. Maybe we do something like they nail him to the cross and then, you know, maybe like when he raised from the dead, he walks around to all of them and they're like, oh my goodness. And then all the Jews believe, right? Like, like maybe it could have happened like that. And here's what I want to tell you in that. If that sounds good to your ears, it's because you were about as wise as I. It should not sound like a good idea. Why? Because God is much wiser than I. He needs not hindsight nor foresight. He knows the best way. Knows it. Does not have to observe it or think it out. Before He spoke it into existence, He knew the best plan to lay. 
the wisest plan to lay. This is it. This is it. But rather, through their trespass has come, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So each and every one of us, is there anyone from Jewish heritage here? Not that you know of, then that's you that it's speaking of. Salvation has come to you because the Jews rejected their king. And they still today, understand, they still today are in rejection of the king that came for them. But not forever, right? We're going to get into that tonight too. Not forever will they be in rebellion against their own king. That's a promise that we get here in Scripture. But because of their rejection, now we, the Gentiles, have come in. Salvation has now been made available to us. And as we've studied throughout this book, if you go and look through the Old Testament leading up to the coming of Christ, the, this, this kind of knowledge that the nations are going to be brought in is seen throughout the book. Right? Abraham is going to be a father of many nations and his people are going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Go back and look at the promises that were made to Abraham that kicked this whole thing off, right? Go back and look at where the root starts here, and you'll see this to be true. The nations were always part of it. The nations were always the plan. God is much bigger than one people group can describe. He needs the diversity of all that He has created. And He is working towards that even today. And here we see the start of it. right? The influx of the Gentile believers. So much so that it would, Paul hopes here, so as to make Israel jealous. Paul's preaching to who? The the Jews have rejected Him. He's gone out now. God sent Him. To preach to the Gentiles, he's preaching to the Gentiles in no part along the way. Knowing the truths that we have digged through in this book up to this point, none of that causes him to say, well, I'm just not going to say anything that's going to influence my brothers, the Jews, anyways. They're hardened, right? No part along the way. Knowing that they're hardened, what is he doing? He's still hoping to save some. Because God will, God will save even from the hardest of hearts. We must be faithful in the preaching of the gospel, and God is faithful in sending those who will preach the gospel. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, so from this we should immediately draw what? That riches have come to us through their failing. Right? You need to understand that we have been so blessed because of all that has gone on. Like we are a people blessed because Christ was nailed by His people to a cross. And that is a crazy, crazy thought to consider. And it is absolutely the truth that's been preached that is the reason that we are here today. Now, if their trespass means the riches of the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more were their full inclusion mean? What's he doing here? He is alluding to something that he's going to be saying here in a little bit, right? So, if their falling away means riches for us, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So, has he given up on these hard-hearted people? Has he given up on the nation of Israel? After all that we've seen and all that we've read over the last couple of chapters, should that surprise us at all? Many of us think that it should. Right? Many of you, when you hear the doctrine of election, you think that that should surprise us. But it should not. Nowhere along the way has He presented it in such a way. Yet so often when we think of it, when we discuss it, we we approach it as though that there are certain that have no hope. They have no hope. And we don't find Paul not once does he preach that way. Not once does he preach that way. Even when they have rejected his preaching, he's preaching to people that they will likely never hear from. And he's preaching to them in such a way that hopes 
that Scripture will be fulfilled about them becoming jealous. And through divine jealousy, them coming to a saving knowledge of the Savior that they have rejected. Nowhere does He give up hope. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Verse 13, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. This is a crazy beautiful thing. I want us to get this. Like if you've ever given up hope on someone, Right? If you've ever given up hope, you maybe you think that they are too far gone, that they will not ever accept the truth of the gospel. We should look at this and maybe be revived in our hopes for their souls. Rejuvenated so that we would work all the more. Paul, man, he's a man as we are. This is not Christ doing this. This is the Holy Spirit working through Him. Does He work through Him in a different way than He will work through you or I? Then should we give up hope? We should be encouraged by this. 4, verse verse 15. Verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? You're going to find as we're digging through this, the end of this chapter, nothing but hope from Paul for the, the Jews. Right? Nothing but. And all that he says here, no way does he downgrade them as a people. And no way does he say, well, they're lesser because they rejected their own Savior all along the way. He is holding out hope for his people. Like, if you don't see it, if you've read this and never seen it before, I pray that you would read it again. Let the Holy Spirit work in your eyes as you study this book and see that Paul is not giving up hope on anyone here. Like, we see the language that he uses here is one that just time and time again lets us see that Paul's looking forward to and hoping that maybe he can have some part in fulfilling some prophecies that he's going to give out to us here in a little bit. For if their rejection means, verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what then their accept, what then will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. He makes here allusions to resurrection in this that would bring many thoughts of hope to the minds of the Jews. And I can imagine that Paul's doing this, Paul's wording it in this way, in such a way that if his Jewish brothers were to read this and, and, and read it with open hearts, uh, that God would use this to bring all kinds of jealousy for the hope that they've been looking for all along is found in the one that we call Savior and Lord. The one that they've rejected and maybe, maybe, maybe some come through that jealousy. For, or excuse me, verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay, so we're about to step into verse 16 down through verse 24 here. We're about to step into what can be a, a very difficult to break into, a very difficult to wrestle with in our mind analogy. He's going to be talking about root. He's going to be talking about trees, two different kind of trees. He's going to be talking about branches being broken off, grafted back in, all this kind of stuff here. We are not going to have time tonight to dig into all the different aspects of this. Maybe another message someday in the far future. Not tonight, not next week. We're going to press through with some truths that I hope that we can pull out of this uh, to help us maybe shore up what we've looked at so far and then press us on further into the book, right? Um, so if if we get through this in a particular question, if you're if you've studied this book time and time again, um, and we don't address a particular question that you may have brought up or something like that, I want to apologize up front for that. Um, I want to say up front, there's so much that we can dig out of this that just for the sake of time, we're not going to have time to dig into all of that tonight. 
Um, so that being said, let's press on. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, he's speaking here of the patriarchs, those who have, who have, we see in and through scripture promises being made to time and time again for their people, for this nation that's gonna, gonna grow up. Um, all these, these are the first fruits, and he says if they're holy, then the whole lump, then, uh, so is the whole lump. He's not here in any way saying that they're saved from this. This has been the point of what he's been saying all along is that it's not based on who you were born from that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. Unless we're speaking of you're born of the Holy Spirit, right? Through faith in Christ. It is through faith alone that we have life eternal, not through heritage, not through our parents. This is a truth that's coming in time and time again. What he's wanting to get across here, again, the language that he's using here is one of high esteem for his people. He doesn't want his people to read this. And what could be misconstrued as things that are just very could be destructive to their minds towards Christ or towards this hope, like the rejection of their own people. He does not want this in any way to to take away from them. Again, he's wanting to kind of bring jealousy to them through the hope that he has here. So he's using language that lifts them up, right? So if the first fruits, or if the, excuse me, let's, let's read it again. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if you want to get into that, um, I would say go look at Old Testament. Um, look at some of the traditions going on uh, there. That would be a, definitely a good place to, to dig into. But Paul doesn't spend a lot of time there. He goes on to the next analogy. So he drops that one, and then he goes to another analogy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And this is the one that he's chosen to be important enough to spend a couple of verses here digging into. So we're going to do that as well. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you... Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and are and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Right? So who are the branches that are... Anyone who's studied this before, I want to get some feedback from you guys. Who are the branches that are being considered? There's two major groups that we're considering here. Right? The Jews and the Gentiles. So we're going to be talking about a cultivated tree. And we're going to be talking about a wild tree, right? Who is the cultivated tree? Is it? This is a question that I want us to think on and consider, right? Who is the cultivated tree? Okay, ultimately, ultimately we're looking in this direction, right? Ultimately, we're looking in the direction of believers, right? But here's what we got to, here's what, and this is where we're going to get into the language of being broken off in a little bit. That, that breaking away is going to be the breaking away of many Jews, right? So up to the point of Christ, who would we be able to say the tree in the analogy is? It's the Jews. They've been holding on to promises, and though prophecy is said that what's going to happen in Christ is going to happen, and when God prophesies, you can bet that it's going to happen, then even up to this point, God's giving, God's giving them to the truth that's that, that, that they're working towards, right? Like, He's not like, He's not going to credit them for something they have not yet done, even though he knows and has, in fact, prophesied that they're going to do it. So up to the point of Christ, up to the point that you could believe or not believe in Christ, all of the nation of the Jews who had placed faith in the promises, right? Now what happens is when we get to the time of Christ, where the promises we find are kind of being brought to fruition, when the promises are being answered in Christ, now the promises that we're looking forward to, we, we now look back on those promises, and it was at that moment where they rejected Christ as the fulfillment of those promises. And at the rejection of Christ as the promises that they that had been made to this nation that God is building, this nation that God continues to this day to build, these branches are broken off. Why are they broken off? Because God pruned them. God is sovereign. And they failed to obey the gospel. They remained in unbelief. So they were broken away. Right? Broken away from what? These are going to be some things that we're going to dig into as we kind of press into this. So, um, verse 17, we're going to just reread it for the sake of being able to 
Moving to the next verse with the kind of our thought in check there. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, he's speaking there of the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, right? Not just Gentiles in general, but you had to believe, right? People weren't just arbitrarily grafted in. They were grafted in upon what? Faith, right? Faith. We're going to deal with that again in a little bit, so I want you to remember that. Uh, Remember that answer. So, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. What's the root of the olive tree? Okay, so we can, these are not, these are, these are, these are maybe not bad answers, not complete answers here. So ultimately, yes, Christ is, God is the root from which all things good come. Specifically here, he's speaking to Israel, specifically to the Israelites. He's speaking of their heritage to the root of this, which is who? Abraham. And what was done, like Abraham was kind of pulled out, set apart, made a nation, promises by the promise maker, by God himself, made to Abraham. Blessing. Not curse things like good things, the blessings, the, the, the favor, if you would, of God upon a people, right? And they, being grafted in because of the faith of Abraham, enjoyed many good blessings. Not because they were in any way faithful, but because God is faithful. And when God makes promises, God's faithful even when we're unfaithful. This is a beautiful thing about who He is, is that our hope for salvation rests not in us, but in a God who has made promises, and His faithful in every way to complete the promises that he's made. So this root here being Abraham, being the promises made to Abraham here, and now the Gentile believers being, being grafted in to this tree of great blessing. And, and what does he tell us here? And he's going to use wording similar to this a couple of different, uh, a couple of different times. Um, so, so now they've, they're grafted in uh, to this olive tree. Um, they're partaking of this nourishment that comes from the root of God, Jesus, all the promises made uh, in this verse 18. And what does he say? Don't be arrogant. And here's here's something, as we deal in this, so he's speaking here to the Gentiles, because what it sounds like, or what you could understand Paul to be saying here, is that the Jews are broken off so that the nations could come in. Right? Like, that's a way that you could kind of read this text, right? Like, they were broken off so that we would, the way would be made for us. Right? And when we think in that kind of way, what does that do? Like, that... Like, that builds us up in a way that, that oftentimes can be unhealthy, oftentimes can be prideful, oftentimes can be arrogant. So as he's digging into this, as he's, as he's telling the truth about who you are, right? Like, you are in Christ, and that is something to be very thankful for. But it is in no way what you have worked to achieve, Right? In no way do you find boasting in yourself in these truths. So along the way, he wants just to make, don't be arrogant in this. Like, don't let this doctrine, don't let the doctrine of election, don't let you being fixed in God, chosen by God, be a thing that makes you arrogant about you as though it were about you. Right? Because that's the thought that will tend to go through our minds. So Paul here warning the Gentiles, uh, the Gentile believers uh, away from away from this way of thinking. Don't be arrogant towards the branches, right? Now, specifically, he's talking about those branches who have here been broken off. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And there's so much here that we could dig into. And here's what I want to say on this, is that you don't support the promises. You're supported in the promises. Okay? You're not the one who supports them and carries them on. It's not as though you're, you, without you it wouldn't continue on. Right? You're special because God has chosen you. That's good. Rest in that. Take hope in that but in no way boast in that. 
Don't boast in you. Don't boast in what you've done or what you think you've done. Because when you do, and this is just a good word of advice, when you do, if you get there, remember. Remember who you are. Remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Verse 19, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in 19 to 20. Then you will say, right? So after this, Paul's getting to a place where he does what he's always done. He's going to kind of formulate this argument and place it out there that any rational person following the text up to this point would themselves conclude. So Paul's kind of doing this. But then you would say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And what is his response to this? Does he say by no means here? What does the text say? Granted. Or quite right. So, surely. So, oftentimes, we're used to when we hear Paul saying something, him being like, by no means. By no means. So here he poses a statement, and then he gives you it. Right? What does he say here? Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. In the beginning of verse 20, he says, that is true. Or surely. Woe. Woe. Is God not sovereign? Yet why were the branches broken? off and I want to and and the reason that I've kind of along the way been bringing these things and trying to word it in the simplest way that I can is so that we can reuse these ideas again and again and again and again here I want to say that God God when he says this branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in truth truth and this is what we've been saying that Israel has fallen away In their falling away, God sovereignly planning this thing the whole way, the cross takes place, salvation available to all who would believe, and now it exploding from one people group, the people of the Jews, to all nations. Their unbelief, their breaking off, was so that you could be grafted in. It was. Absolute truth. God orchestrating all of this so that He could do what He's done in Christ. Yet look look how He, he says the next verse. Verse 20, that is true. And what does He say? They were broken off because of their unbelief. So they were broken off that you might be grafted in. Now who would be doing that? God. A sovereign, sovereign God. And yet, and this is why I said last week, like Paul uses this kind of language without skipping a beat. Like he doesn't stop and say, now we gotta take our, we gotta take our sovereignty hat on, off, we gotta put our other hat on. Like Paul uses this language so fluidly throughout. I hope that you see it. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. That is true. Why were they broken off? Both so that you could be grafted in, and because they didn't believe. They didn't believe. But you stand fast through. Does it say works there? You stand fast through privilege there, heritage there. Your parents there, your culture there, you stand fast through what there? Faith. Alone. Faith alone. You stand fast through faith. And I want you to hold on to that. If you wonder if it's something that you've got to do next, now that you've believed, if you wonder if there's something now that you have to do to complete this, you stand fast in what? In faith. Through faith. 
This is, this is the gospel. This is why we're in Protestant church, not a Catholic church. Faith alone, by grace alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. And we stand firm in that. So do not become proud, but fear. And this is an interesting way to say, I mean, you stand fast in faith, and, and then he goes on to say this. Fear? Is, is fear something as believers we should do? Like here, this is strange because here's what I'm trying to preach to you in such a way that you would be a fearless people, that you would go into places in the world that would scare to death everybody who cherishes this world more than the next. And the scripture tells us to fear. What is it trying to tell us here? What's it, what's it trying to get across to us here? If you fail in believing, and he's gonna go, he's gonna go here, like the scripture's gonna go straight into this. And this is, this can at times, if you're looking at this, is this loss of salvation. Like one thing, and, and, and many people who will bring this passage of text up as one of those who would use it and try to support, like this, the text coming up could be used to support you losing your salvation if you don't continue on. Like, here's what I want to say to that person. We are 11 chapters deep now. Read the book. Don't pick out Scripture and try to put words into Paul's mouth that were never there. You read the first eight chapters of this book. And then you come back with that argument. You won't. You won't. So that's not what he's trying to say here. What he's trying... Let's, let's press on. Let's press on into it. We're going we're gonna to dig this stuff. We're going to dig this stuff out. So don't become proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. And that's awfully scary. And if you are sitting in church today, enjoying the blessings that God has poured out on His people, this text should scare you. Unless you are firm in your faith. Alright? Because there will be people who are among us who are not us. Right? Like we see it, we've seen it before when people have been a part of us for like decades and then they come and join us in faith. Right? Like, like you should fear because your mind and your heart can so easily lead you to false things. So easily. And I know we've got certain ways of doing things, right? Like, like I know we play music, and last week I brought the music thing up, and, and, and God works in all of these things. Like, let's be straight up clear in that. But one of the reasons that, that, that like, there was a time before that, and I don't often do, do, uh, what do you even call the things? Where afterwards I'm like, hey, come at the altar, invitation, thank you. <laughs> you see how frequently. <laughs> And one one time, and you were, and I was like, let's 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 not, because it's so easy to fool ourselves into believing that we're something we're not. So here's what I want to tell you: I have no doubt or question in my mind who I am and who I stand for. No fear in life. No fear in death. Because I know where my faith is firmly fixed. But how often times, how many times myself, when I think back, when did I, when did it really click? There's like three times, four times, I'm like, it could have been there, it could have been there, it could have been there. Like I don't know which one it was, but somewhere along the way he worked in a way that solidified it without question. Some of you could be in that boat to where it kind of makes sense to you, but you're not locked in. Right? You're not locked in. When you are locked in, right? When your faith is firm, fixed in Christ, 
who He is, what He has done for you, there is no fear. There is no fear. You become a fearless people, but do not be fooled by your lying mind and heart that will tell you time and time again you believe when you do not believe. They will tell you that you are in when all the evidence of your life says to the contrary. Don't be fooled because you felt emotional that you were locked in. Because there are days that you will want to quit and it doesn't mean that you're not. And this is what Paul's trying to get at as he's digging into this. So don't become proud, right? Like, don't become proud. Don't become haughty because of this. Fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Why did He not spare the natural branches? They disobeyed the gospel. They did not believe. They were enjoying the promises of God. Being a part of, at that time, the nation of the people of God. But because of their unbelief, broken away. Broken away. What do we see time and time again by those who are, it kind of sounds good, but I'm not, I don't know that I'm quite convinced, but I'll say I'm convinced because it's, it sounds good. It seems to be working. I, lo- I like the benefits. Like this, there's, there's, there's some great benefits in the community of the church. I want I want you to understand that. As a church, there are benefits that those who are lost can enjoy amongst us. Right? Like, y'all are a fun people to be around. I want y'all to get that. Like, I love being around you. You're encouraging. And the lost, those who are almost there, they could do the same thing. But I want to tell you, I want to tell you, the way, and here's the thing, and this is, like, I'll say it time and time again, time and time again. Like, run the race and time will tell. Run the race and time will tell who you are. If you want to know if what I'm saying about being fearless is true, watch me. Watch me. Watch me run. Watch me struggle. Watch me live. And I can tell you this truth, that if I stand firmly fixed in faith, that faith will be finished by Christ. Start to end. Start to end. Note, verse 22, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And let's press on. We've kind of discussed this a little bit. Let's press on here. Verse 23, and even they, if they not, do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So we see this grafting in and out of this community. The blessings of God pouring forth in a particular way upon a particular group. Looked like the nation of Israel. Up until Israel rejected Christ. Now bursting forth into the world in such a way that you can't look at a particular person's color or nationality. And say that you are or are not. Like it's faith alone in Christ alone. To all people. To all people. And this is the hope that's kind of come forth that we're, that we're dealing with and wrestling with in this. And this hope is based on what? Why would they be grafted back in? Why is he hopeful that he will make them jealous? Because through that he holds out hope that they would believe. That through jealousy they would be led to look at the Scriptures anew. That their eyes might be opened by it. That they might what? Believe. And when they believe, what will happen? What is it based upon? Faith alone. But friends, be sure that your faith is true. Be sure that your faith is true. Because time will not lie to you. It will not. You either will be faithful in faith or you will not. Time will tell. And now we get, and we're going to kind of end with this. 
we're going to end with this, and then next week we're going to look at the doxology at the end of this chapter. Doxology is kind of words of praise that Paul's lifting up. We're going to save that for a sermon all on its own. And I just want us to kind of read through 25 to the end, and then we're going to talk about this promise. So God's laying out a promise. And here's where I tell you, this is, a, this is some very prophetic stuff. This is bank on this is that there will come a day when you identify the nation of Israel. Right now, when you identify the nation of Israel, the people that make up the nation of Israel, do you say Christ or not Christ? When you look at them, do they accept or they deny? There will come a day. There will come a day. I want to tell you this. And Paul's looking forward to this. Paul's holding in this. There will come a day. It may be in our day. It may be beyond us. But this is a prophetic truth of Scripture. There will come a day where God will redeem the nation of Israel. Where when you think of Israel, you will not think of rejection of Christ. When you think of Israel, you will think of resurrection from the dead. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that will be when that takes place. Paul's hoping for this. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, Israel, all Israel, will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, and I want you to, I want you to get here now this word election, where it's been used for the church. Election's now been placed on their side, right? Like this is a, a beautiful truth of scripture. Right? But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive Mercy. And we talk, and I talk a great deal about God's work among the nations. Let us not forget that the people of the Jews are among the nations. So when we think and we pray about going out, right, about who, who we should send or where we should send to, let us, let us not discount them. Right? Let us, let us not stand in a place that, well, they've had their chance. Right? Let us be as Paul, holding out hope for them, praying for the nation as a whole, because this is something that will come to pass. And how will it come to pass? Through the working of the Holy Spirit, through belief, through the gospel being preached to them. What a beautiful thing. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on who? Who is mercy for? A select group? Who's mercy for, church? And here's where I just want to pause and say there are those who have yet to hear this gospel. Here? Because we've yet to tell them here. And there are places that they cannot even get a Bible in their language. It's not a factor of the church there being lazy. Right? It's not a factor of the church getting comfortable there in their pews. It is a fact that in that people group, the church does not yet exist. Does that concern us? Does that concern us? 
church, as we're getting close to wrapping up the theological portion of this book, and we're about to start diving into some really practical application of this on our lives, as we've now removed all excuse, right? You you have no excuse for saying you do not know how to present the gospel. Tirelessly, we have labored through this book. You have no excuse. You cannot say that it was not presented to you. Or you've never heard it in its entirety. We have labored to this point. Let our labors not be in vain. Let us take what God has poured into us through His Word, and let us go out this week. There will be people that you come in contact with this week that need to hear this truth. Will you share it with them? Will you share it with them? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank You uh, for this day, for Your uh, Word, for the Gospel, the the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, I thank You for being faithful. Um, Lord, so oftentimes we're unfaithful. Uh, forgive us, forgive us of that. Lord, let, let us, as I hear this sweet baby cry, let us, let us consider that there are fathers holding babies in places around the world that they cannot, at this moment, tell their children about Christ. Lord, as we see death all around us, And as preachers, we comfort those at funerals with the hope of the gospel. Let us, let us not forget that there are funerals being had today where they don't even know the hope of the gospel. Lord, there are men burying their wives that have no hope as we would have. There are fathers burying their children that have no hope of this gospel. Yet, Lord, that you would raise up among your people a fearless, a fearless people who would go where you call them. Lord, the harvest is ready and ripe. Lord, I pray that you would send into the harvest. Lord, that we would be a church you would send. For Christ's glory. In all the nations. Amen.